Welcome to The Way Church. We're glad you're joining us for today's message. For sermon notes, service times, and more information, check us out online at thewaychurchva.com. Now let's join Pastor Matt Rothy with this week's message. How good are you at resolving conflict? No, I'm not talking about conflict that may occur uh, interpersonally between other people. I'm talking about the conflict that definitely does occur within ourselves, within me, within you, with, within all people. How good are you at resolving that conflict? Take Tom, for example. Tom is a gentleman who considers himself above average when it comes to his care of the environment. Tom is not an extremist, but he considers himself just very reasonable. Tom recycles. Tom also uses uh, canisters and cups for his coffee and his water that can be reused. He's, he's not always using plastic water bottles. Tom outfits his home with energy-efficient light bulbs because it saves him money and, well, it saves the environment. Tom doesn't use plastic grocery bags. Tom springs the 12 cents to pay for the reusable grocery bags, and whenever it makes sense, Tom carpools. But then Tom goes to buy a new car. And, of course, he does his research to buy the make and the model that is the most environmentally friendly. But then Tom brings the car home. He drives it for a couple months, and he soon realizes his car doesn't get nearly the gas mileage, well, that he was advertised. And on top of that, the battery that's in the car, well, he reads an article about how when that battery is going to be disposed of, it's worse for the environment than compared to any other car battery. How do you resolve that conflict? Scientists actually have a, a name for that kind of conflict. It is called cognitive dissonance. Cognitive simply means it happens in your head, in your brain, and dissonance simply means uh, a, a, a contention or tension, uh, anything that's discomforting. That's cognitive dissonance. And the theory goes like this. Whenever we human beings experience within ourselves, in our brains, things that are not comfortable, things, behaviors, beliefs that are at odds, our brain kicks into gear to immediately restore peace in our brain. And it does that, here's where it gets really interesting, by changing one of our beliefs or one of our behaviors. Take Tom, for example. Tom has basically two options. He's driving a gas-guzzling vehicle, and he also cares a whole lot about the environment. So what are his options? He can stop driving a gas-guzzling vehicle, return it, buy a new one, or use it less. Or he can stop caring about the environment. Or he can just tell himself, well, you know, it's, it's just one more car out on the road. What does it really matter? He can maybe care just a little less about the environment. What do you do? How do you deal with that kind of conflict? Well, as it turns out, we're actually really good at this. We're really adept at 
resolving the dissonance that goes on in our head. We like to think that we're all healthy eaters and we make healthy eating choices, but then it comes the holidays and we see some very delicious looking cookies and we say to ourselves, yeah, yeah, I got this good diet going, but oh, it's only one cookie, even though it's really like the 12th today. Or we consider ourselves very honest people, people who do what's right and tell the truth. But then we catch ourselves telling a lie. And so our brain kicks into gear and we restore that, that dissonance, that disagreement by saying to ourselves, well, it's a white lie. And I, I'm only telling it so that this relationship can go on in, in good fashion. Oh, I'm telling this lie and it, it was for their good. As it turns out, our brains are really adept at dealing with dissonance. And it happens by changing our behaviors or our beliefs. But is that a good thing? What about when the dissonance happens in your life because of God? What about when you experience spiritual cognitive dissonance? What happens when one of God's promises doesn't match up with your present? What happens when you experience tension, when you experience discomfort in your life because what God promised and what you come to believe God said doesn't match up with your present circumstances? What do you do then? How do you deal with that conflict going on in your head? Take this promise of God. Here are several promises of God, actually. God says to us in his word, he says, Deuteronomy 31, the Lord himself will go before you and will be with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. That's the Old Testament. Then Matthew chapter 28, Jesus' very last words before he ascends into heaven. He says, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. That's what God promises. But what happens when in your present circumstance, God feels a million miles away. The diagnosis that you're dealing with or a loved one is dealing with comes in and it, it feels like God is not present and you are very afraid. What happens when God's present, your present, doesn't match God's promises? He has more promises still. He says in Jeremiah 29, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. In Romans 8, 28, God's word promises, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. That's God's promise to you. But what happens when in your present, it doesn't look like there's hope for your future? You grieve the loss of a loved one due to death, or you grieve the loss of a loved one due to a, a broken relationship, and you say, God promised to always be there. He promised to have a plan for this. He promised to work things out for the good, and I love God, but there, there doesn't seem like there's anything good that can come from this. God's promise doesn't match your present. 
God says in Psalm 103, as far as the east is from the west, so far has God removed our transgressions from us. 1 John 1, 9, we read it earlier in our worship. God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. He promises to forgive you. He promises to remove your guilt. What happens when presently the self-talk sounds more like a voice saying, I hate myself because of the wrong that I've done, because of the shame that I bear, and that's your present. And yet this is God's promise to you. What happens when God says to you in his word, he promises to you that the peace of God, which trans under, uh, transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, he says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. That's God's promise. What happens when presently you're coming to God, you're coming to him in worship, you're, you're, you're asking him to give you rest for your soul, and you can't find any. God tells you not to worry, not to be anxious about anything, but to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and everything, everything that is an earthly need, dress, clothes, shelter, food, all these things, they'll be given to you as well. What happens when you are? You're, you're here. You're putting him first as a priority in your life. And yet the earthly needs and wants, they're just, they're just not matching up. What do you do? How do you solve a conflict like that when your present doesn't match the promises of God? Well, as it turns out, we're actually, we're actually quite adept at solving that spiritual cognitive dissonance. There, there's something to be said about the theory of cognitive dissonance. What our brains do, for better or worse, is that when we experience something that is in disagreement, we change. We change our belief or we change our behavior. And what happens, because we know we can't change our present circumstance, often we, we change what we believe about our God. We'd never state that out loud, but we look at his promises and we look at our present circumstance and we say, a God, a God who promises to be with us always so we don't have to be afraid or discouraged. We say, that seems like a God, more like a God who is cold and who just sits on his hands. We say, I have a God who promises to give me hope and a future. I have a God who promises to work things out for my good seems more like I have a God who is powerless or loveless, but he can't be both. I got a God who promises to remove my guilt, to remove my sin, and yet it is crushing me all the time. seems more like I have a God who puts a straitjacket on his people just to bind them with shame and control them with fear. seems like I got a God who tells me to come to him for rest and he's not getting any, giving any to me, so it seems like I don't really have a God who's worth coming to all that often. It's sad, but we're quite adept at solving the spiritual cognitive dissonance in our life. We look at what God says, and because we can't change our present circumstance, often in our attitudes and in our hearts, or in the way we reflect our faith in our life, we just change our belief about who our God is. That's where James comes. James chapter five comes to us and shakes us by telling us about who our God really is. 
In verse 9, James writes this, Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at your door. What James is reminding us is this. All of the complaining, all of the whining, all of the changing of our beliefs about God, they do nothing to A, change our present reality, nor do they change the certainty of God's promises. Because this is sure. The one who is coming, the one whose advent is unquestionable, is a judge. And he is standing at the door ready to judge you or all people who stand whining, complaining, and condemning even God himself. Now, to be sure, as we celebrate Advent, the coming of Christ. We, we look forward to celebrating his first coming, but we're also warned. We're also warned about his second coming as well and what that means, that he will come to judge. He will come to judge you and me and all people. And while that is certainly a warning for all people, it's also a welcomed encouragement for Christians. Here's why it's both. In James chapter 5, just one verse removed away from calling the Lord the judge, James offers this comfort. He says, you too, you, you too be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. How is it that in the same very breath, he can say, watch out, the judge is coming. He can also say, be encouraged, be patient, stand firm because the Lord is coming. Well, here's why. It's because the message of Christ's return, the message of Christ's advent, the message of gospel that Christ promised to come again, he came the first time and he's going to come again. It is a message of warning and a message of judgment for those who stand in the place changing the beliefs about the God of scripture. It is a message of judgment for those who complain and grumble against God. And yet... It is a message of joy. It is a message of comfort and confidence for those who stand firm in the promises of God by being patient. That's James's comfort for us who stand in a place where our present doesn't match God's promises. Here's the answer. He says, be patient. Be patient. If God's promises don't seem to match up with your present, simply stand firm and be patient. Some of you are sitting there writing that down like, yes, that makes sense. That, that's good. Well, God bless you. Because the first time that I read James as I was preparing for this sermon message and I looked at God's encouragement to me, his command to me to simply be patient when my present doesn't seem to match up with his promises, I said to myself, God, are you serious? Just be patient. That's like, that's like telling someone who seems to be upset to just calm down. Let me ask you, does that work? No. Does it work to just say to someone who's waiting, whose present doesn't match the promise, to simply be patient and that will just solve it all? And tell me this, where do you just get patience? If being more patient is your New Year's resolution, tell me that. How do you go about obtaining more patience? You see, patience isn't this tangible thing that you can go out and just get more of. So I'm asking you, how do you just be patient? 
I wondered that. <laughs> I wondered that very, very much as I read through James chapter 5. And I'm really thankful that this is how God's word works, and this is how God works through his word. That he doesn't just tell us what to do. He doesn't just tell us commands and expect us to fulfill them without telling us how, without providing for us in the gospel the resource to carry them out. Listen what he says. James chapter 5, he gives this example. He says, brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who persevered. This is James' encouragement. He says, be patient with this perspective. Look at the prophets. Look at their lives and also look at their message. Look what was going on. Oftentimes for the prophets, the prophets who lived in the years before the coming of Christ, their present did not match up with the promises of God. Very often they lived amongst a people. They ministered to people who had turned their back on God. So the presence of God was not their present reality. Yet in the dissonance that they experienced, they didn't distance themselves from God or his promise. They didn't change what they believed about God and who God to be, but in fact, they doubled down on his promises. They grabbed hold of his promises and get this. They did it even before God fulfilled his promises. He says, take that as an example. Take that as some perspective. And now you too be patient. You too be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. What he's saying is be patient with perspective. And how's this for some perspective? Look at the prophets, look at the message they spoke and look at it in your life. Go, go to their words, their message and their life and count up the hundreds, the thousands of verses that talk about your Jesus, that talk about the promises of God, that he is going to send his son, born of the line of David, born of a virgin, born in a city called Bethlehem. He called it, he called his shot and then he promised some more that when he was born, kings from foreign nations we're going to come to worship at his side. When he comes, he's going to heal others and he's going to proclaim the gospel. And ask yourself this, did he fulfill those promises? Did he fulfill any of them? Did he fulfill all of them? Check. And after you get done counting that, why don't you go back, stand firm in the presence of God where he's found in his word and count all of the promises that he made about what Jesus will do when he shows up, about he will live for you a perfect life. He will suffer and die and after three days he will rise again and ask yourself, did he do those things? Did he do what he promised? Then when you get done doing that, go back to his word, stand firm in the message of the prophets, including Jesus Christ, and ask yourself all of the promises that he made, that he said he would rise again. And when he ascended into heaven, he would send his Holy Spirit to you, into your life, to give you all of his gifts, his love, his forgiveness, his strength, his courage, his peace, and examine your life. Look back on it and tell me this. Did he fulfill those promises? Check. He said, that's being patient. That's being patient, not just abstractly, but that's being patient with perspective, a perspective that stands in God's word and looks back at all the promises that God gives you and looks at those to understand your present and your future. Is God's present, is his present 
always match up with your present, his promises. No, sometimes there's some dissonance there. But what he says is, do not dismay of your Lord. Do not diminish your God and who he is because God cannot lie. He has kept every one of his promises and he's going to keep them to you. He's just going to do it in his time. So be patient. And, and that's really another imagery that he gives us here in his word about patience. He says this, Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. James gives the example of a farmer. He gives the example to make just this one point. The farmer recognizes that there are a good many things that are not in their control. The rain, for example. So you know what the farmer does? He looks back on seasons past and sees what has happened and notices with that perspective that every autumn, every spring, the rains came. And so it is with you. There are a good many things that are not in your control. One of them being the timing of God fulfilling his promises to you in your life. But be patient. Be patient with this perspective that you can look back on every season of your life, that you can look back on every season of history and see that there is a God, a God who does not change, who has fulfilled all of his promises to you. You have a God who loves you, who is compassionate and full of mercy, and who is true to his word and all of his promises. That's the God that you have. That's what Karen found out. Karen was mad at God. Karen was mad at God because, to be quite honest, her present in no way looked like it matched up with the promises of God. So she gave up on God. And yet on one December evening, she was walking downtown and she was walking past a church that was all lit up. And so she walked inside. Church was getting ready for their Advent service. And she was alone in there. And yet the pastor walked in and and she didn't want to startle the man. And so she let him know that she was there. She said, hey, is is it okay if I'm here? Pastor said, yeah, of course. But she wanted to clarify. She said, is it okay I'm here? I mean, I don't believe in God. And while Karen didn't want to startle the pastor, it was the pastor's words that startled Karen. The pastor said to Karen, why don't you tell me about this God that you don't believe in? It became rather clear rather quickly that the God that Karen had rejected was a God who was cold and careless and sat on his hands. The God that Karen rejected was a God who who was not present, who wasn't there to give a hope and a future. The God that Karen rejected was indeed a God who gave arbitrary rules and abstract only to confine people to shame and blame. The God Karen rejected clearly wasn't a God who gave rest and who was worthy of worship and praise. As Karen described the God that she had rejected, the pastor smiled, and that too startled Karen, so she asked, why are you smiling? That pastor replied, oh, because I don't believe in that God either. 
because he doesn't exist. Karen said, tell me about your God. And the pastor got to tell her about a God who is full of compassion, who is full of mercy. And that's how James ends his encouragement to us, his encouragement to be patient with perspective. He ends by telling us about the real God, the real God who changes not, a God who is the Lord, the Lord who is full of compassion and who is full of mercy. I just need to leave you with this. Do you know what compassionate means? <laughs> In Greek, the literal translation for the word compassion is polysplanktos. And poly simply means a lot of, or many, or full of. And splanktos, uh, well, it refers to this. It refers to a stirring in your intestines and your stomach. Put the two together, and what you have is a lot of stirring and a lot of moving in your intestines and your stomach. That's who your God is. <laughs> a God who sees you, a God who knows you, and a God who feels for you, who, who in whom has a lot of stirring going on, a lot of compassion, a lot of emotion for you every time he sees you. And let me tell you this, his eyes are always on you because he cares for you, because he is full of compassion and he is full of mercy. And his compassion and his mercy are most clearly seen in the gifts and the promises that he gives. A promise that he was going to send his son Jesus to be for you and for the world a savior. Check. He did this. And then he came and he gave more promises. Promises that said he is going to come back and he is going to take you to be with him forever. Promises that says he's going to send your spirit. So while you wait for him to come back, he's going to give you everything you need, including patience. So be patient. Uh, be patient with a perspective that stands firmly on Christ and looks to Christ as the fulfillment of all of God's promises. Christmas in Fredericksburg, it's coming. It's not here yet. So be patient. But be patient with all of the peace and with the perspective of our eyes squarely on the coming Christ. Amen. Amen.